Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, a pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter. I'm joined by my co-host, Jen. Hello. How's it going? Uh, doing great. Hey, how was your trip to Mexico? It was great. Um, yeah, I just got back a couple of days ago from Merida, where it was like the Mexican DDW. Ooh. Yeah. So um, organizers, including uh, Eric Toro, who was one of the candidates for a Mexican counselor, mm-hmm. uh, he organized it, invited me to come on down. It was awesome. Some of our former guests were there, like uh, Dr. Rachel Rosen and Dr. Jose Garza. So it was fun. We brought Emma. <laughs> that was a disaster. <laughs> I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, How was the flight? Well, we finally gave in and she now uh, has an iPad. So. Ooh, game changer. Yes. <laughs> but it's horrible. Like literally in the morning, she'll wake up. First thing she says is cocoa for cocoa melon. Blech. Yeah, I know. That sounds terrible. And she like has never really slept in our bed. And then the entire vacation, which is 10 days, because we actually, Leslie had a talk at a conference in Florida. In Florida. Right? Yeah. Um, so the whole time she slept in our bed, she wouldn't sleep in the pack and play we brought. We don't, we <laughs> I can, mean, I wouldn't want to sleep in a pack and play either if uh, there's a super awesome bed right there. It was horrible. <laughs> no, it was great. Good memories or something. Yeah. yeah. It gets better when they get older. So Mike, we just, we just came back from a trip to Arizona yeah. and we actually hiked 13 and a half miles oh my gosh. over the course of seven days. That's insane. It was a lot. We hiked in Zion and Grand Canyon, Dang. Sedona. So they were not carried? No. Wow. It was so fun. Wait, was Avery is like what? Five. five. Oh my gosh. At one point we're hiking down Bright Angel Trail in the Grand uh-huh. Canyon. You should look it up. And that's actually going into the canyon. Mm-hmm. And I've there's a there. steep drop off. Yeah. And we had this rule. You have to stand by the wall. Well, she goes around the corner and there are these rocks on the other side. And she was like, balance beam. Oh my God. And I had this moment of panic. Like, do I lunge at her, which might scare her. So I had to use my voice calmly and she went to the wall and it was fine. (laughs) Well, you know, so something similar, a moment of panic for me in Mexico. So we were at, you know, this resort for a few days between her conference and my conference. Mm -hmm. And then, so Emma's on the bed. She's 20 months. She has markers and she's coloring or something. Okay. She's on the bed. There's like nothing else there. We're packing up and we're like, where are the marker caps? And I searched everywhere. Did she eat them? Well, I looked like in the bed, in the sheets, in the pillowcases, on the ground, everywhere. They were gone. And I was like, Leslie, there's, there's only one explanation. She swallowed, she ate them all. (laughs) But like Emma's happy. She didn't throw up. It it made no sense. Like she was not obstructed. She was, I like forced her to drink and eat food. I was like, she's tolerating PO. What happened? Uh, she put, she put them into a bag. We, so we found them like 10 hours later, <laughs> but literally for hours, I was like, she's swallowed. She has three marker. Leslie was like, it doesn't make any sense. How could she have more than one that she, <laughs> after the first one, she would have stopped, but. Maybe kids are weird. I literally was about to contact uh, Dr. Toro, the guy I mentioned. Yeah. And like, hey, you know, when my, when we get to Merida, I might need an endoscopy for my daughter. Oh my but, gosh. Uh, well, I'm glad everything was okay. Honestly, Leslie was like, that is absolutely not the explanation. I think it's just 
Pete's GI mind went immediately to yeah. <laughs> foreign body. Oh yeah, for sure. Anyways. Well, All right. Okay. Yes. So moving on. So today we have another really cool nutrition topic, yeah. which we just had one release on uh-huh. enteral nutrition and Crohn's disease. And this one is another recommendation from the nutrition committee at NASVEGAN. And the topic is dietary and environmental influences in early childhood and the impact on long-term health outcomes. So we basically ask questions we would want to know yeah. for our own kids. I think if, you actually said, what should I feed my child? Yeah. <laughs> she only eats goldfish and like pouches. So, and then that this is, is not also- true. I have seen videos of her eating other stuff. Oh, no, no, no. So that's like Instagram. That's not reality. Uh, but this is also someone who is your uh, former mentor. Yeah, so Mark Corkins is the division chief of pediatric GI and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center at and Lebanon Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. He's also an endowed chair at St. Jude Children's Hospital, and he was the program director when I did That's my fellowship. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. It was nice to like be able to interview him in person in Orlando at NASPGAN. Yeah, great guy. Wait, we have to talk about that for a minute. So Peter had this crazy room. Okay, we both did. I know, I know. I think I was on one floor and you were on the other floor. And we had like we interviewed him at this eight person marble table. Uh-huh. It was so fun to do it in person. Though. So it was like I think it's because we flew in at six a.m. We left Columbus at six a.m. Super early, like before anyone was there. Right, and then the check in people were like, "Oh, your room's not available, but there's a what do they call it? Like a suite or no? Something? They, no. they said something weird. Parlor. There was like a a parlor, a parlor room yeah. or something. We're like, uh, sure, whatever. Something, something, something. Murphy bed. Yeah. You remember that? <laughs> I actually don't. But I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then it was like essentially a humongous conference room with a kitchen and like a couch area and a m- tiny Murphy bed. Like a full-size Murphy bed. Yeah, it was very odd. But <laughs> I feel like everyone who we interviewed for podcasts walked in. They're like, wow, Naspkin got you a studio? I was like, no, we just checked in too early. But In fact, they actually did reserve us a studio, but we didn't even use I it. I know, because we had our rooms. And as has been said before, I mean, Naspkin was awesome. Oh, it was awesome. And it was great meeting listeners, giving out a bunch of stickers. Dr. Corkins was awesome. I think it was, it's just an important topic to think about how food early in life and also before being born yeah. affects outcomes later. And I think if anything, the last episode with Dr. Wine emphasizes how much food impacts all the GI pathology that we see. So yeah, you are what you eat. All right. On to the episode. On to the show. Dr. Mark Corkins, thank you so much for joining us on Bowel Sounds today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I have been wanting to have you on for a long time. Dr. Corkins is my fellowship program director, wow, so we go awesome. way back. Way I, back. You were <laughs> you were my attending when I was a second year resident, yeah. I think, no, or absolutely. maybe an intern. Yes. I think a re- intern, actually, yeah. honestly, yes. Yeah, because I had you right after Dr. Linda Lazar, so I was very scared of her and not as scared of you. Wow. Yeah, I'm not that intimidating or frightening. <laughs> yeah. But So I know you very well, but we're going to start with perhaps a pretty challenging question. So for the listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Mark Corkins is my name. Talking nutrition is my game. Wow. <laughs> well, this is I the love perfect it. episode. Yeah. Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's the shortest one we've had yet. Yeah. yeah. Usually it's like, you know, run super on. compound run on sentence paragraph. Yeah. But Simple, but straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> you know. 
So I feel like we're on a radio show. Yeah. I well, it. I was told once I had a great face for radio. That's kind of why we do podcasts as well. Yeah. So, but okay. So we have a, we have some standard questions we ask everybody sure. and we have a new one for this season. Okay. Obviously you are from Memphis. Yeah. I have never been there. I've heard a lot about Memphis and yeah. I've heard it's an awesome city, it mostly is. from my co-host yeah. Jen. It's pretty yeah. great. City of blues, Beale street, Elvis. But what's like the one thing we need to see, do eat that most tourists don't get to see. Now this sounds funny, but you need to go to the Memphis zoo. Okay. All right. So wow. now, so when Nixon went to China, now that's uh-huh. a long time ago, the ambassador to China was a senator originally from Tennessee. And so after Nixon visited China, the Chinese government gave several sets of giant pandas to wow. the U.S. Okay? okay. And so there are four zoos in the U.S. that have giant pandas. One of them is the Memphis, Memphis Zoo. zoo. Okay. And they have a special... Um, pagoda or whatever and it is very cool and so if you want to see giant pandas go to the memphis that's Zoo. awesome they're really awesome they're they really very are. cute yeah. they usually they're not moving but sometimes <laughs> or they're just eating they're eating well they're yeah yeah they eat a lot that's, that's kind of what they do that's what they do yes but yeah. i also feel like at any zoo 90 percent of the animals are not moving yeah that's true they're but the pandas there. are pretty special they though. are pretty special yeah. because you can only find them at you know four zoos in the u.s yeah that's yeah. really cool yeah, yeah. so if people don't know that if you want to see them, you, you got to see them because they are an endangered species. So that's yeah. um, a unique thing about Memphis. I love it. So Dr. Corkins, you were recommended as a guest by the Nutrition Committee yep. and you've had a long interest in nutrition. So you've held several national leadership roles. You've authored books on the topic. Mm-hmm. Your wife is a dietitian. So tell us about how you developed your interest in nutrition. Well, you know, it, like anything, sometimes you don't plan things and they happen. So as a medical student, we had a professor, Boyd O'Dell, who thought medical students didn't get enough nutrition. Hmm. So he went to his chief or chair and said, the medical students need more nutrition. So they gave him one hour a week to talk about nutrition. So I got that in medical school. Then I got to residency at the University of Iowa. There was a guy there, you may have heard of him, Sam Foman. If you don't know who Sam Foman is, the AAP gives out a, a, a Foman award and he did some of the original studies on what should be in infant feedings and, you know, kind of led to some of the early formula development. And when I was there, the chief of GI was a guy named Don Mock and Don Mock did study on biotin research. And Ken Lombard was there. Who's I think he's now in Maine. Ken Lombard was doing studies on iron metabolism. Then I did my fellowship in Nebraska with John Vanderhoof, who did all this nutrition and short bowel syndrome. And I kept going to training places where the focus of the people there was nutrition. It was almost like it just happened. In a way, I think the people who mentor you and guide you as you keep getting exposures, that kind of guides your career. Um, so it, it's interesting. You know, you see these people and they have a fascination with, and nutrition and after a while it just becomes natural. So your wife is a dietitian. Yes. How did that feed? Was it like you were already on the path to nutrition and then... <laughs> yeah, no, I was already on nutrition. I met her at a nutrition meeting. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. I met her at a nutrition meeting. Of course, my kids are like, why do we have a vegetable every meal? <laughs> Dad's a PGI doctor, does nutrition. Right, and, right, and, right, right. And wife is a dietitian. Yeah. I mean, and I got it when my, my middle daughter went to a, like a high school graduation party and she came back and she's like... <laughs> They had pizza and French fries. She's like, yes, they didn't have any vegetables. I'm like, yes, she gets it. That's impressive. Well, yeah. and Kelly's really great. So at Lobonner Children's Hospital, when I was there, she worked in the 
CTICU with some of our most vulnerable patients. She was our go-to dietitian. Mm. One of them. The lady is really smart, Mm. but she married me. So you guys have to figure (laughs) out what that means. (laughs) So that's kind of how I feel about my wife as well. Yeah. So, okay. Moving on to our topic. Yes. So today, so we're talking about how dietary and environmental influences in early childhood impact long-term childhood outcomes. Uh, So why is that important for us to think about? Okay. So now there's two ways to approach this. Mm -hmm. All right. One is the development itself. All right. And so there are certain areas, for instance, of the brain, the substantia nigricans is iron dependent. Hmm. Okay. And so they're this critical area that during this critical period of time, if you don't get iron, you can't make it up. Okay. Literally that area will not develop. And the brain is, is develops in what they call a scaffolding approach. So you build this one area, then the next area develops on top of that scaffolding. So if you mess up the nutrients at some point, you're going to miss that developmental window. So there's these critical windows and then there's sensitive windows and sensitive windows are, you know, if you catch up or you fall behind, you can catch up, but you can't, you can catch up a little bit. But the critical windows, you can't. So it's interesting. So it's like, okay, you got to have certain things at certain times. And if you don't, you get into trouble. All right. So that's the first part. It's literally the development part. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, the second part is also is programming and metabolic programming. All right. So and some of the best data comes from Memphis, from St. Jude. All right. So they have this data that they have all these kids and they treat them for cancer and they cure them. And then they develop obesity. It's also like the data on premature infants. They see a lot of them later develop obesity. And there's this thrifty hypothesis. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you're starved when you're young, your metabolism is programmed to be more efficient and use your calories and your intake more efficiently. And so because of the thrifty hypothesis, if you're behind, you may be more efficient and then you're more prone to that obesity and all that later on. So literally there's, like I said, there's two prongs to that. Right. Because first off, there's the the whole programming and the right nutrition at the right time is so crucial for the development. But then there's a little metabolic program that if you don't get the, if you overdo it or don't do enough, you get into trouble. Yeah. It's like, it's the parent of a young child. It's like, man, So much pressure. There is. There's so much pressure. And of course, now I will say, if I can take a little bit here, the other thing is to realize that it's a U-shaped curve uh-huh. because more nutrition isn't good. Mm-hmm. I wish I could say, all right, if you give more nutrition to right. your child, they're going to be more intelligent. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Nutrition is one of the few things where literally you have to have enough. You, It is crucial to have enough. Yeah. But too much is also bad. Mm. It's a lot of pressure. That is pressure. (laughs) The pressure is is incredible. And so right now I'm the chair of the AAP Committee on Nutrition. Mm. All right. And so healthychildren.org, I actually asked them because I was asked to give a talk about nutrition education. Mm -hmm. And I went to them and asked them what the top hits were on healthychildren.org. In the top 10, almost like... 80% 80% of them, roughly, I can't remember the exact number now, were nutrition topics. Yeah. What do I feed my infant? What yeah. do I feed my one-year-old? What do I feed my teenager? Was literally the top hits. Parents are 
desperate to know yeah. what good nutrition is. I believe that. I mean, even as a pediatric GI, you know, I feel like every other day my wife is like, oh, this container, if you microwave it, you know, that's going to be bad for my baby, for our baby, blah, blah, blah. There's so much there. And I feel like obviously you just want the best for your child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so important that we're talking about this today in this episode. I agree. And I want to take it way back. So you had mentioned those critical periods of development. So let's talk about the in utero experience. So we know there can be important physical and developmental impacts from maternal exposures to medications, alcohol, drugs, things like that. But what do we know about the impacts of maternal diet on a child's development? Well, again, there's multiple facets to that. The, it's funny. The number I remember is seven at seven. IUGR infants at age seven have a seven wow. points lower IQ at huh. age seven. Seven at seven. Seven at seven. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It, that's the study. And there are other studies, but that's the one I remember because it's right. seven at seven. Uh, so if you're IGR, if you're malnourished in utero, there's actually also data on iron and iron in utero, and later brain development. Some of the attention, ability to pay attention, is linked to prenatal iron in some of the studies. So, like, you wonder about some of this hyperactivity. But attentiveness in studies is linked to mother's iron status during pregnancy. Hmm. So that's kind of a, you know, these links are very interesting. So maternal, yes, maternal uh, nutrition is crucial as well. Uh, protein intake uh, is crucial, again, uh, for maternal intake, for maternal outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, there's actually a little bit of literature. Again, it's, I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, so my focus is primarily on infancy or whatever. But there's actually a little data that I saw recently that mothers who eat a healthier diet, more fruits and vegetables and less red meat or processed foods, were less likely to have um, premature labor. Oh, wow. Hmm. Okay. Which sort of makes sense. Although it's, again, how do you tease out the socioeconomic right, stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Right. The confounders on that. But it was a pretty decent study. But So if you eat better and are healthier, mm-hmm. you're more likely to have a better pregnancy outcome. But that's sort of common sense. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. And I think the thing that we always have heard about is folate, folic yeah. acid. But yeah. it sounds like from this conversation, it goes way beyond that. It's, it's not just folic acid that we have to take in pregnancy. No, you, you got to be smart mm. during your whole pregnancy. Again, I'm a gastroenterologist. Maybe I'm simple-minded. But, you know, in a computer, garbage in, garbage out. If you're feeding your baby and your baby's sole source of nutrition is what you eat and drink... Right. <laughs> don't you think that's going to have an effect on your baby? Common sense. I, you know, maybe I'm, maybe it's too simple. Maybe I'm making it too simple or maybe it is that simple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess kind of moving along. Um, so after the baby is born, of course, a big decision in the beginning is going to be breastfeeding versus formula feeding and of AP and all the pediatric societies recommend breastfeeding exclusively for at least six months, ideally. Yep. Um, obviously, that can be a challenging thing. Culturally, there may be practices that you know uh, may not align with that. But what is like the the evidence for that kind of recommendation? Well, there is evidence that it's not necessarily what I call straight nutrition. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, there are studies, and there's constantly studies going on for the formulas to make them more like breast milk. In fact, that's one of the big advertising right. things: is more like breast milk. What is different is 
the secretory IgA, mm-hmm. is the lactoferrin, is some of these uh, immune factors in the breast milk. And so there is that data about, you know, there's less autoimmune diseases, there's less diarrheal illnesses, less respiratory infections. So the immune factors are what's different, and that's going to be tough ever to add to a formula. Right. Okay. Now, the data and this large data is like, okay, the IQ points, three to five more with breastfed infants. Okay. Three to five. Again, that's hard to tease out. What is three to five points? You know, does that get you into, you know, a good college or not? <laughs> you know, what's the value of three to five Q, uh, things? But again, those autoimmune data, that's a little scarier. You know, uh-huh. you're less likely to have Crohn's and less likely mm-hmm. to have those kind of diseases long term. But there are women who can't medically they're on certain medications that they can't breastfeed uh some women their milk never come in formula nutrition can be complete and then you're going to have to do the best you can with your social economic developmental you know processing for the kids what you expose them to Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of Piggybacking off that a little bit, what recommendations do you have for parents regarding formula selection? And also what guidance and recommendations do you have for the parents, like the mothers who may feel like a failure, like maybe they've wanted to breastfeed and they've seen all these recommendations, but for whatever reason they can't. Well, again, it's, you know, the formulas, honestly, nutritionally, they're complete. Okay. And every company has their wrinkle, right? right? And some have probiotics. And there's a data that maybe that helps. And maybe that is maybe a little bit of an immune thing. Uh, Some have some of the long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, PUFAs. And maybe that helps with myelination. And um, the thing is, there's not super great data that if you're well-nourished, you need anything extra. You know, a lot of the things we're talking about when I talked about some of those iron deficiency... Those are when there's deficiency, right? When you're sufficient, more doesn't make it better. That's that U-shaped curve. So, you know, there's some wrinkles. Nobody yet has anything that's proven anything is perfect Mm. or that's going to make a huge difference. And the thing is, your child, one of the most important things is the bonding that takes place, okay? And they talk about bonding in breastfed infants, but to be honest... Bottle feeding, feeding your infant, there's some bonding that takes place with that too. And again, nobody's going to be a perfect parent. I have yet to meet a perfect parent. My children would tell you I'm not a perfect parent, right? <laughs> if you've ever met a perfect parent, they're not a perfect parent because they're lying. Right. Um, <laughs> they're lying to you. So nobody's a perfect parent. Just to follow up on that a little bit, I mean, would you say that, like, let's say the mother's breastfeeding but not able to produce enough milk? I mean, at least giving some breast milk is going to be. There is some, there is some, there seems to be some data that a little bit would be helpful. Yes. Again, there's these immune factors and you just can't manufacture those artificially. Right, right, right. So moving on to solids. Yes. I have an 18 month old. I feel like we should have done this podcast like 18 months ago, but (laughs) um, so what guidance do you have for introducing solid foods to babies in a way that would have kind of that quote unquote best impact on their health and anything that you would uh, introduce early or avoid well, okay. So what's interesting is, again, we lo- I looked at all this data because the AEP was mm-hmm. ready to produce the yellow book. And we started looking at the data. And, you know, how many studies do you think there are on the ideal complementary feeding 
out there? How many do you guys think? You guys are intelligence. You're you're doing bow sounds. You know, you're doing the podcast. <laughs> we just ask questions. Yeah, you, you know, just we ask don't questions. I'm asking you questions. questions. How many studies? When I went and looked, how many studies do you think there are? I mean, probably not that many. Right, but there's the, way, the one with peanuts, like the early yeah, introduction that's of peanuts. Yeah, that's the only one that peanuts, comes to mind. But that's about allergy. Right. But nutritional right. content, there's none. Wow. You really can't find any. That's crazy. Well, how would you do it? Yeah. Right. All right. Right. Now. All right, so there's a little data that if you start solids before four months, you increase your risk of obesity. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Probably changing, the, again, the metabolism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not, at least the first few months of life, mm-hmm. you're supposed to be reliant on that liquid. It's right. supposed to be your sole source of nutrition. So there's a little data if you start solids too early, there's an increased risk of obesity. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. The one important, number one nutrient deficiency in the entire world is iron. Mm-hmm. And breast milk is a little poor in iron. So it seems the one thing that the data agrees on is that when you start some sort of solid, it needs to be something rich in iron. Mm. Okay. Now, so in the U.S., we tend to start cereals, right. but they're all iron fortified. There are countries in the world that start with meats. That's mm-hmm. totally foreign to us. But when we look at the data, there are some countries where they start with meats. Now, you know, not raw meats, obviously, they can't do right. it. But, but I'm just saying, bed food appropriate, they start yeah. with meats because of the iron content. So that seems to be the crucial thing. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, again, there is no data. Okay, this is a corkinism. Jen's heard this before. <laughs> I know a lot of like yeah, corkinisms. Jen, Jen, Jen knows this. So I, I pull them out, by the way, a lot of times with my patients now. So just cor- corkinisms. Well, okay, so this is. Where science stops, I have to admit, I know that there's no science for this, all right? This is personal belief and just experience, all right? So I call it a corkinism, all right? My corkinism is I start with vegetables. Okay. Okay. Because when you start the fruits and the sweeter things, we all are born, and this has been shown. Now, this is a fact. This is not a corkinism. Sure. We're born with a tendency to like sweets, Okay. That's why I like Jen so much. She's so sweet. Oh, oh and I ate all the jelly bellies. Yes. <laughs> I, have a jar, I have a jelly bean dispenser on my desk and she would come in. I thought she was coming to just talk to say. me and see how things were going, but she's actually rating my jelly bean right, jar. Right, right, right. Um, but we're all born with tendencies for sweets. Mm-hmm. So my personal experience with my own children and other children is you start with the vegetables first, the, the stronger flavors that aren't as sweet and you have better luck getting them to persist with the vegetable intake if you start those before the fruits. Yeah. Okay. That and that's sense. personal. That's a corkinism. That's just my bent. Um, I haven't seen any data or literature or a study to do that, but that's just, again, uh, and it also seems common sense. Right, right, right. That's what we did with my kids. Yeah. And they eat vegetables now. Yeah, no. I mean, they still prefer the sweets, but yeah, they will no, eat we them. all like sweets. But, you know, um, again, my kids, they, they expect a vegetable every meal. You know, mm-hmm. it's just part of the diet. You know, we're all very busy. A lot of people eat processed and fast foods. And actually, we recently interviewed Dr. Aton Wine to talk about the Crohn's disease exclusion diet, so yeah. CDED, which is essentially removing processed foods. So what does the literature tell us about the impact of processed foods at the population level and its long-term health? Right. So there's this, this concept of ultra-processed foods producing this this state called meta-inflammation. Okay. Hmm. Meta. <laughs> like meta-humans, like superheroes. Wow. But anyway, it's a meta-inflammation. All right. So it's not what you would think of as a classic inflammatory state. You're a little bit inflamed, but that chronic low-grade inflammation hypes up your immune system. 
And so that hyped up immune system eventually will kind of go off the rails in some people and increase your risk for things like Crohn's and, you know, multiple sclerosis and lupus and any kind of autoimmune disease. So that's the theory. Now, data proven that there's some like huge population studies that seem to seem to say, yeah, maybe there's a trend here. Definitely there's a trend with ultra processed foods and obesity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because they tend to be very energy dense foods. Um, and because of that, you know, they're, you're consuming a lot more calories than your body needs. And so that's definitely a link, but the inflammation thing, there's some trends. I don't know that it's gospel yet. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that meta inflammation, that's like inflammation that's not reflected in like our usual serological biomarker. Right, right. It's and, a low grade. Yeah, and and, and the problem is, you guys know this, the GI tract is always in a kind of constant state of controlled inflammation. Yeah, right. You know, we're constantly sampling, right? The lymphocytes are in there and then the pyrus patches and they're seeing them, the antigens come in and then they go out to the circulation. So we're always in a controlled inflammation, the GI right. tract. So when does meta inflammation when does normal controlled inflammation become meta-inflammation? Right. So again, there's there's a whole lot to unpack there and a whole lot we don't know. Yeah. It, I mean, it is fascinating though. Like the data on the CDED, you can remove these processed foods and it's in some studies it's as impactful as steroids. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. And inducing remission. Yeah. Like it's really impressive. It's very impressive. And so again, that's we need a lot more studies. We need a lot mm -hmm. more data. That's what we need. You know, mm -hmm. there's enough data out there to, to I think, provoke curiosity mm -hmm. that we need more data. Yeah. That would be such a hard study to perform, though. Well, and it's like, you know, I got to be honest, in Memphis, you know, we have Crohn's patients and we'll suggest, you know, an enteral diet. And one mom looked at me and says, eat nothing but the formula? <laughs> That's just crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. It's hard yeah. sell. Right, right, right. It's a hard sell. So, our next question I actually, it's kind of a personal question for me because we have a lot of debates in my household about this. Organic foods, like our baby, do they, does she really need like organic vegetables and fruits and like milk? And does that really matter? What does that even, like, is there any evidence for that? Ah, you have scratched an itch. Okay. <laughs> now, so the, actually the, the American Academy of Pediatrics, I don't know if this published yet. We've actually worked on a statement. Of oh, this. really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So first off, nutritionally, an apple grown uh -huh. on an or a apple tree, nutritionally is the same. Yes. Okay. I feel organic <laughs> versus non-organic. Yep. Nutritionally is exactly the same. Why is it going to be different? Right. Okay. Whether it's organic or inorganic. Now the difference is all right. They use pesticides mm -hmm. or herbicides. All right. Although organic doesn't mean you can't use any. There's some natural organic, some soaps and things that oh, you can use sure. if you're doing organic. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Uh, so it's interesting. There's actually an approved list if you go to the to the USDA website of things that are approved for use. All right. So organic farming, though, because you can't use some of the more common pesticides and herbicides, you have more wastage. Mm -hmm. You have more loss. Mm -hmm. And so they tend to be more expensive. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, but there is a risk of these pesticides and herbicides, and there's some trace amounts on some of the fruits and vegetables. The problem is what the data is showing us, and this is true data, not a corkinism, this right. is true data, <laughs> is that some parents now are saying, if I can't afford organic, 
I'm in risk when I give my children fruits and vegetables. Hmm. But what the data tells us is even though there's a low risk of those pesticides and herbicides, you would be 10 times better giving your child fruits and vegetables than Twinkies. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And that's actually one of the worries. We're kind of pushing back, Mm -hmm. but not too hard. We're trying to push back and say, you would be better to feed your child a healthy diet with a little bit of some, some non-organic risk. Yeah. As opposed to doing ultra processed foods. Right. You know, it's, it's funny. It's like, okay, risk benefit ratio, but that's Mm -hmm. a hard concept for folks in the general public to understand. Right. Risk benefit ratio would be for a healthier diet, even though there's a little risk of non-organic. So, you know, if you can afford organic, well, that's great. You'll take that risk out of the equation, but it is more expensive because some crops, 25 to 50%, you will lose because you don't have the herbicides and the pesticides. Yeah. But what about that dirty dozen? So every year, the Environmental Working Group puts out a list, yeah, right? They the do. dirty dozen and yeah. the clean 15. Yes. Um, and any it, specific guidance on that? Well, again, some of them, most of that is in the soil, right? Mm-hmm. Especially root crops, mm-hmm. all right? For carrots, it can vary a whole bunch for carrots. You can peel them. You can wash them. There's all sorts of things you can do to lower that content. And you can find different batches have different amounts. And so they actually recommend like changing manufacturers and changing, don't always buy the one brand or the same brand. It may vary from batch to batch and from Hmm. producer to producer. So there there are some things you can respond to that. Mm -hmm. So are you saying those foods that are on the Dirty Dozen, I think the ones that are commonly on there are berries, strawberries, Mm -hmm. raspberries, blueberries, that kind of thing. Any, anything else we can do? Because berries, we can't really peel, nope. right? So is there nope. anything like wash them with the special washings or vinegar? A good, or no, like a, good, a good washing, if it's something you can peel, you peel it. And then you vary it, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. So like you have berries this week, one kind of berry, and the next week you'll have a different kind of fruit. You know, the, again, varying the diet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the um, contaminants they worry about are some of the heavy metals, for instance. Mm. All right. Well, the heavy metal contamination varies by the soil and the industrial processes in the area. So you get, you know, for instance, fish. Some of the fish was contaminated with mercury, mm. but you need a low grade fish because of the healthy fats in it. So the recommendation is you eat fat two or three times a week and you vary the type of fish that you're eating. Mm. So again, the variety spreads out your toxicities. So not necessarily eating the same thing every single day. Absolutely. Mm. Which is monotonous anyway. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, we, I feel like in a past episode, we talked about that a little bit with uh, rice cereal. Yeah, mm-hmm. rice is the same Arsenic. way. Rice is one of them, you know, um, rice is one that's born, you know, tends to be grown in waters and mm-hmm. patties. And a lot of the contamination for arsenic, which is the worry in rice, has to do with the amount of water in it. So depending on where your rice is grown, you have different levels of arsenic and different species of rice take up different levels of arsenic. So you mix up your rice. You don't always, you know, use the same rice from the same kind of um, manufacturer and you use it from different areas. Yeah. So that's how you vary it up. Have you, does that impact how you recommend like thickening formula for babies? Uh, Well, yeah, you know, um, absolutely. Yeah. Got to mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard though, because at least my understanding is when you use that ITSY classification, depending on what type of rice cereal you use, you may need more or less. So you can't give an exact recipe. You can't say put a quarter teaspoon because Brand A versus brand B versus brand C will actually mix it differently. Yep. So that's why you have to do the drip test every time. That's why you have to do the drip test. Yes, you have to know how thick 
you're aiming for in the new mildly thickened, moderately yeah. thickened. Yes. It's these one through seven. Yes. Fascinating. Okay. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so, wait, so who won the debate between you and Leslie? Well, I mean, I'm not against organic foods. Yeah. I just feel like, okay, I feel like, um, you know, I feel like you're supporting my side a little bit. It's really more about the food itself, like getting fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, okay. I, well, I always so are you a cheapskate? You don't want to pay for the expensive <laughs> organic? Is that what it boils I just to? feel like there's a lot of like hubbub, like to do made about the branding. And like, it's hard to know how much of that is marketing and how much of it is like really a difference, mm. but that's just me like in my cynical little world. Mm. So well, and again, the, the data is showing that there are parents that are limiting fruit and vegetable right. intake. It's like, I can't afford organic and it's dangerous if I don't. Yeah. That message is completely wrong. Yeah. yeah. And that I think is scary. And we're, you know, again, we're trying to fight that idea. Right, 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 right. Uh, you know, um, you know, it's like, I'm not going to ever take a car ride because I might be in a car wreck. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it is nice that the AP is going to come out with a statement about that. There's that there's some nuance. It's not just yes or no, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it is like what you said. It kind of goes back to just common sense, you know, and yeah. uh, certainly ultra processed foods are still going to be way worse than your non-organic Apple. Yeah. Well, and when we spoke with Dr. Aton Wine about CDED, I asked specifically about organic because there's no mention of organic status mm-hmm. in the CDED diet. And, um, and he gave a very similar sentiment. So we talked a lot about like early life, in utero, infant, you know, early life, toddler, that kind of stuff. What other things do you think are important for pediatric gastroenterologists to know about childhood nutrition and like basically what should, how any tips for us feeding our own children? Tips for us feeding our own children. <laughs> well, actually the data is really, really good. Do you know when you look at your child's diet, whose diet it most resembles? Mine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Cause I feed them what I'm eating. Yes. Typically. Don't, I, it, true story, I saw a mom in clinic and she said, Dr. Corkins, you need to tell my son he needs to eat fruits. And I just had a moment of clarity and I looked at the mom and said, huh, <laughs> well, so you want your son to eat fruit. Well, what's your favorite fruits? Oh, I don't eat fruits. I don't like fruits. Ugh. And I'm like, well, don't, I can't tell your son to eat fruits if you don't <laughs> eat fruits. Mm. All right. So as you know, if you, if you want right. your kids to eat, right? You have to model eating right. I mean, it's more caught than taught. It is interesting though, that childhood, you start to see more influence from peers. There's actually one study out of Great Britain that actually in teenage years, it's a negative influence. What's interesting, the better the parents eat, the worse the kids eat. It's a rebellion (laughs) thing. Classic. Mm. I I looked at it. It was fascinating. Um, And and they haven't followed up. I wonder, you know, the hope is when they get, maybe when they're getting their 20s and they mature a little bit, they'll kind of come back to it. But it was kind of scary. The healthier the parents eat, the more the kids ate unhealthy. Wow. When they're teenagers. So when Emma's 13, it's just McDonald's all day, every day for me. And then Emma's going to be, Oh yeah. Right. Um, so, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. It's just interesting. Cause I feel like, you know, Emma's our first child and like we, uh, it's like, am I overthinking things? Like, am I like all these little things that they really matter? But 
it's nice to really kind of hear that. Yeah, it is. Well, and, and the thing is, uh, you, you love your daughter, right? And, yeah. and someday she'll meet somebody and she may have children and you may have grandchildren, oh right? Gosh. And do you want to be around for the grandchildren? I do. Then you need to eat, right? Yeah. I need to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. Exercise, sleep, diet, good diet. You know, um, you want to be around for grandkids. Right. You know, I actually have some grandchildren. And if I'd known how good they were, I would have had them first. <laughs> Honestly, you know, and, you know, to be honest, though, it, you got to take care of yourself. Right. You know, if right. you want to be around for a while and see those things, you got to eat right. But you want to set an example. Yeah. If you want them to eat right for the majority of them, you got to eat right. Yeah. I like what you said about modeling. It's just like for any behavior, mm-hmm. you're trying to, you know, behave so your child, you know, follows the good path. And I like that you told the parent, you know, that's really what the underlying thing is that's going to help the child eat fruits and vegetables most is, you know, the mom or dad. That's true. I can't think of a lot of times that I've actually asked the parent what their diet is, but I do think it's important because, you know, for our patients who have celiac disease, we talk about going gluten-free in the Mm -hmm. entire household Mm -hmm. to make it easier, but I, I don't think I really processed or thought about doing that just for everyday eating. Yeah, right. no, it, it is interesting uh, when the parents come in and they want to question diet and diet for their children. I'm like, are you willing to do it too? Right. Are you willing to do it too? If you really want to, if you really want your kids to do it, you need to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, you know, Dr. Corkins, like I mentioned before, I've been wanting to have you on this, having all these Corkinsisms or things that I look back on my fellowship really fondly, because I think, you know, when you say them, they just make sense and then it just sticks. And somewhere 10 years later, when I'm seeing patients, it sometimes just comes out and I don't call it a Corkinsism to them, but (laughs) in my head, I'm giving you kudos every time. But looking back on your career, what has been the most valuable advice that you've received? And what advice do you have for your listeners? Well, the best advice that I got and is still true, and I tell all my fellows, I know you've heard this, programs, equipment, facilities, they're great, but it's all about the people, Mm -hmm. all right? And the people in the division in Memphis, it's all about the people. Yeah, we can have great facilities. We have a great office. You know, we have a great clinic building. We have, you know, all this, you know, fancy, you know, we have the latest high definition scopes or whatever, right? But it's about the people. It's about the people in the division. It's about the nursing staff you work with. It's about the dietitians you work with. It really comes down to people mm-hmm. and the people you work with, the people you have in your fellowship, all right? The fellows you pick. You know, Jen, I'm, you know, to be honest, I'm like her professional father. Okay? <laughs> I mean that and I, yeah. without, without getting creepy, right, right? Without getting creepy. But it's like, it's awesome to see her doing well. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. So it's about the people. Mm-hmm. It's about the relationships. Mm-hmm. That's what's crucial. When you're trying to build a great division or a fellowship or anything, it's about the people. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it's about it's about the people with our patients as well. It is. Right? Like little Johnny in front of me is not a patient with celiac disease. It's little Johnny. Like I want to know about him as a person. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I always say, yeah, I have a, so 
I, I have an interesting, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. Hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting the answers you get, you know. Uh, you know, what do you want to do? What do you do when you grow up? And I, you hear all sorts of things. It's kind of interesting what yeah. kids think they want to do when they grow up. YouTuber. Yeah. No. Influencer. Influencer. <laughs> now, I, not, no, I have professional basketball player. Memphis yeah. is a big basketball town. Yeah. Really Grizzlies, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They want to be professional basketball players. Yeah. You know, um, I've had all sorts of answers, but it does give you a little insight yeah. when the kid tells you, I want to be this or I want to do that. I also think like, I feel like more often than I expect, they say they want to be a doctor, Yeah, yeah. you know, which is like, wow, I have to really conduct myself professionally. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> Set exactly. a good example for them. Well, and some of the, you know, I asked them and some of the yeah. kids who are chronic kids yeah. mm-hmm. tell me, I want to be a gastroenterologist. Yeah. What's scary more is when they say like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we got to get the psychology referral for you. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. so, but that's great advice. So Dr. Corkins, thank you so much for joining us oh, on welcome. our podcast. And Dr. So Jen, I almost called you Dr. <laughs> Dr. Lee. Lee. Jen has been, you know, obviously so excited about this episode and I can see why now I think that that information you gave us is going to be really helpful for so many people, like not just pediatric gastroenterologists. Um, any final words for our listeners before we let you go? Remember to have balance in your life again. Uh, my tombstone is not going to say, I wish I'd seen one more patient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you have a family, you know, you got to find that balance. Mm-hmm. So balance in everything, not just in diet, balance in life. Right, right, right. That's so good. That is Once good. again, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. What a great episode. Yeah, that was awesome. I'm so glad to see Dr. Corkins. It was really great to be with him. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you have jumped ship and left Twitter, we have a Mastodon account, but don't check it out yet. We don't post on that. And I also don't know how to use it. And if you like what you've heard and you want to support the podcast, it would help us out if you did one of all of the three things. One or all of the three things. One. Tell a friend about the podcast. Two, leave a review so others can find the podcast. And three, on the Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspagan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspghan. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. You forgot the uh, .org on our website. They did? You did. Oh, but it's okay. You can also get there through naspagan.org. <laughs> As always, the discussion views and recommendations podcasts with sole responsibility with hosting guests are subject to change with the answer of the field. I Thanks. barely understood what you were saying. Thanks for Bye. listening. Bye. Bye.